This is NPR's Life Kit. I'm Barry Hardiman. I am the parent of two kids, and there's something that creeps into my consciousness every time I see another tragedy like the kind of racist shootings we've seen in El Paso, Christchurch, Buffalo. The criminal is almost always a young white man. I am raising two young white men. It's a horror, right, to think that your kid could be a victim. It's a whole different kind of fear to think that your kid could be, I almost don't want to say it out loud, a perpetrator, a racist, a sexist, a bigot, somebody who could even be susceptible to these ideas. Because we know where a lot of these ideas come from. They're part of the online world that our kids frequent. I'm not even talking about the places that openly identify themselves as homes for white supremacy. I'm talking about Roblox, YouTube, all the gaming platforms and social media. And I wanted to talk to someone about it because when it comes to that online world, the kids are just so facile with it. There's almost no way to get ahead of it. It's hard not to panic. So I called an expert because I wasn't sure if the way that I was talking about it with my kids, especially when it comes to the dangers online, was the right way. Christine Saxman talks to parents and teachers about this stuff all the time. She's been doing racial and social justice facilitation for about 20 years. This episode of Life Kit, Preventing Radicalization with White Children. Christine will help give us tips that focus relationships over scare tactics. And I want to say up front to parents listening, don't panic, because what I found was surprisingly empowering. I should say my kids are in elementary and middle school. And while I know that parents make different decisions about how much access to technology their kids have, since mine do have some online access, they're 8 and 11, we started there with some daily anti-radicalization hygiene. So as a parent of white children, and in particular white boys, I think being very aware of what they're doing online and normalizing that you talk about it, that it's a regular part of your family dialogue. You know, what was the funniest thing that you saw on TikTok today? Or, you know, what's the best meme you've seen last week? So that when they come across problematic material, you already have had some conversations, laid the groundwork that this isn't like unusual or awkward. We're just talking about it as a regular part of our family culture. So sort of treating it in the same way that you would like, you know, going to the corner store, we always say, hey, how'd it go? Did you make sure that you locked the door when you came in or whatever? Yes. It's a kind of normalizing it. Okay. What what do I need to think about um, the things that I'm on the lookout for in different ways for the two of them um, in terms of ages? Like how how does that change as depending on the age of your of your kids? I think for middle school and kind of pre-middle school the ways in which they're coming across memes and information is much more of just that like awkward, like we're just trying mm-hmm. to <laughs> make connections. And a lot of what they come across, they don't even understand. And then for older children, I think recognizing that they have some agency already and and being supportive of, I believe you're a critical thinker. I know you like to ask questions and building up what you believe about your young people, um, whether they're your own children or children that you're, you know, interacting with, so that it's not just adult to child. Like, I have all the knowledge, you have no knowledge. Mm-hmm. That it's, we are co-creating and learning about things together. 
So as you said, the sort of the giant pool of darkness that lurks is, is this sort of online space. Um, but I would say that for them, video games are, it's one of their favorite things. My youngest loves Minecraft. My oldest loves Roblox and Switch. Um, and I think that the online gaming community, um, in my experience, it feels like a black hole for parents. How does it work? You know, what should I monitor? And, and I guess, you know, are there things I should consider just not allowing? Well, any place where they're going to be meeting people from anywhere, anyone who has an account and can basically, honestly, pretend to be whoever they want to be. So there's like this level of trust of these are young people who want to play these young games together. So whether it's like in Oculus in the virtual realm, oh, I mean, right. Fortnite is not as much anymore. That was a really big one for a while. But any place that your child has an opportunity to do a free chat or be contacted by people that you don't know, that's an important place to build up their skills so that you can trust them to engage. Because mm -hmm. prohibiting is usually the thing that actually makes them want to do it more. <laughs> I'm sure as a parent, you know that. <laughs> I, uh, you're killing me softly with your song. <laughs> and so that has to be a long-term thing because we have to we have to build up our young people because whatever the thing is, it's going to pop up somewhere else. Yeah. The nefarious actors are smart, they're strategic, and they will go where the young people are. So what what are the sort of just, you know, I, I've covered some some extremism, and so I know that, like, humor is often a way that people or sort of sucked in, what are the kinds of, um, you know, the sort of seductions that happen here for kids that they might not realize that are not as simple as like saying something overtly racist? So a lot of it tends to be that, honestly, some of the, the intro points are the joking around um, LGBT issues. Mm, interesting. That is a very kind of entry point uh -huh. um, for many different conspiracy theorists. So the jokes get worse and worse. And then the content gets worse and worse. So those overlapping, almost like mm -hmm. a Venn diagram, if you can imagine, the ways in which they can use each of these different levers to pull you in. Because once they've normalized this kind of dialogue, that it's okay to dehumanize gay people, it's okay to dehumanize women, uh, that we believe that there's this you know, Jewish cabal running things, that that's the stepping stone to go deeper and deeper, like the rabbit hole I'm sure you've heard of, or the red pilling. I think that there's often a narrative that they're just out there trolling as if trolling isn't an intentional strategy to entice young people, either because of the edginess, because we know young people lean into a certain edginess. It's absolutely developmentally appropriate. And also for young people who are, who are feeling isolated, who are feeling disconnected, who want a sense of belonging, they offer a sense of belonging. What you're talking about is an actual, is a, is a recruitment strategy. There's something about that which obviously is I find terrifying. I should I be having the conversation like they're trying to recruit you. Yes. And I think that that goes to what I was saying earlier about trusting our young people and building up their mm -hmm. own agency. Like you're smart. Let's talk about what's the purpose of this? What's what's mm -hmm. the message? Is this the world we want to live in? Does this align with our family values? Does this align mm -hmm. with who you want to be in the world? And like I believe you can spot when people are being disingenuous with you, when they are trying to get you to believe something that you don't really want to believe. So again, it's building up their sense of pride, their sense of like, I am a critical thinker. I am a good questioner because they're not going to tell you everything. And so the, which is appropriate, right? Too. Which is absolutely appropriate. <laughs> right. And right. so knowing that I can have some belief that they're, the times that they tell me about 
means that there are also times that they're not telling me about and that mm-hmm. they have the skills to handle it. Right. Well, right. But mostly I sort of wanted to know is what makes them sort of tune out? Because mm-hmm. I do feel like th- there are a lot of warnings in their life. <laughs> and they and those warnings range from like, wear your helmet to be careful on YouTube. Like they, they are, there's a lot of expressing to them your sort of fears. And I like, this feels special to me and of a piece. And so is there a thing that I can do to sort of set it off from the other kinds of warnings in their life? So one of the things that I'm thinking about is related to having your network of adults that you can talk with. Because part mm-hmm. of it is my own emotional regulation as a parent, as a caregiver, as someone who cares about oh, 100%. People. And so making sure that I have places where I can, I can kind of like run up the ladder and be very escalated in my emotion because mm-hmm. I care about my young one. So I'm not in any way offering don't have that place, but have that place so that's not happening with your young one. Because the eye roll comes when they're like, you're just being dramatic. Like, you're going to the worst possible thing happening. And I just, like, I just laughed at something online that I thought was funny. Right. Right. And so when we have our own place to emotionally regulate and do our own pieces, then we can be present and not be reactive. Because often the eye roll comes when we're reactive. They're like, oh, stop it. Mm-hmm. So if we can... They're responding to our emotions as opposed to the content exactly. of what we're talking So about. if we're more centered, the ways that we can share perspective and share ideas and also trust them, I think is the piece that's, again, I really want to name of, I trust that if you came across really bad content or a really bad person that you would you would have some skills or you would reach out to me or your coach or your, you know, whoever the trusted adults are, your teacher. Mm-hmm. But that it's it's not, we're doing that from a frantic place. We're doing that from a calm, we're meeting. You, you got this. You, I believe, I believe in you. Right. It's funny, you're, you're talking about something that I, I personally struggle with because, you know, there's underreacting and, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist. I've I've covered a lot of terrible things. Striking that balance is a thing that I I know, you know, my peers struggle with. Um, I know that I do. And what I worry about is the sort of eye rolls. <laughs> like what 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 are the what are the things I just really really try not to do? Yeah. Well, I want to offer two things. And one of the resources I want to offer is the Western State Center's Confronting Conspiracy Theories Toolkit. Mm-hmm. Because it includes this scale of expression from UCLA's Ruskin Center. And it actually mm-hmm. takes you through accidental absorption. So that's kind of what we were talking about when we talked about your, mm-hmm. you know, your littlest ones. Like, mm-hmm. I just saw this thing. And other people think it's funny. So I think it's funny. It's that accidental mm-hmm. aspect of it. And then there's what we've already acknowledged in the social edginess. The appropriate mm-hmm. of like, I'm trying to push boundaries. I know this will push a boundary, even if I don't understand the boundary. Then there's the political provocation, which means I'm hearing things from our larger dialogue, whether statewide, you know, nationwide. And that's a deeper level of engagement because I'm starting to believe the white nationalist, the white supremacist ideology. And so I'm starting to engage in some overt hate. Like I'm starting to actually hate LGBTQ people mm. or I'm starting to hate immigrants or I'm starting to hate people of color. Mm. That's, that's a deeper level. And then, of course, there's the worst level, which is the engaging in violence, right, which we saw in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. So I don't want, in accidental absorption, I don't want to act like they're about to go shoot up a school, right? That's yes, right? That's yes, disproportionate. I, I also uh-huh. don't want to be like, if they're starting to show overt hate, be like, 
boys will be boys. This is just them joking around, right? That's the underreaction. Uh-huh. Let's say you on that scale, right? Um, you would notice that your kid has come to a place where he, he does have some harmful beliefs. You've, you know, at even if it's not all the way at that, the scale of violence, but you notice that he thinks Hitler mustaches are funny. He thinks, you know, that, that he's expressing himself. You, you see him slipping down that rabbit hole. What do you do? Mm-hmm. So this is that hard part of being centered because you just need to stay in relationship and you mm-hmm. have to be curious about why he thinks those things and why he believes those things. And that I know how hard that is. There's a great example from a, there's a Washingtonian um, story a number of years ago about a young 13-year-old white boy who, mm-hmm. who became a leader in the alt-right online. And his mom talked about, like, she would go to alt-right rallies with him, even though every fiber of her being doesn't believe in this. And she had to maintain her relationship with the young person because otherwise he was going to go all the way. If he didn't have her anymore... But she just stayed with him. She stayed with him. Now, she did. that doesn't mean that she, like, agreed with what he said or that she didn't express her own opinions. It, but it was that, that was, like, the non-negotiable. It was like, I am always going to be here for you. Even if I don't agree with the ideas, I'm going to be here. The relationship is the thing. And we hear that from, every, from everyone from, like, Christian Picciolini, who is a, a yeah. former neo-Nazi, all the people who we know who've, who've been radicalized, who've come out, have said it's the relationships. Derek Black is another one. It's the relationships. Now, not there's an obvious difference for, for parents when it's your young person. And I want to offer to other caregivers. So I want to offer to coaches. I want to offer to teachers. I want to offer to administrators that that relationship is also really important. That we don't make that young person think they're disposable because when they think they're disposable, that's when Buffalo happens. The other thing I'll offer is normalizing having that discussion with other adults so that we are also practicing (laughs) Mm -hmm. supporting each other in those conversations. So it's not just normalizing the conversation that we have with young people. it's, It's having the conversation with adults and caregivers. In terms of the sort of the social aspects of this, what are the things that a child might notice with their friends? Because I think, you know, we're talking about peers and like they might be the first one to hear somebody say something sketchy. Is there a script I can give the kids so that they can feel empowered to talk to them about it? What are what are the actions we can help them take with their friends, with their peers? This is such an important question of how do we help young people? Because they are going to know most mm-hmm. problematic things before adults in a young person's life. And so how do we help them ask some questions? And this goes back to building the critical thinking skills of how can you ask your friend who maybe keeps sharing something with you that you don't really like? And also to know that line when it's gone too far and I might need an adult. like Because I don't think adults need to be policing every single problematic conversation that young people have. That's part of being a young person is learning how to do that yourself. The social piece, I think, is something that, um, you know, like holds so much promise and then also so much danger, right? Like, because I, you know, my youngest isn't there yet, but my, you know, and my oldest doesn't have a phone, but um, but group chats, they're happening on Google, they're happening on iMessage, they're happening in all these different places. You know, I'm a person that does not believe you should read your kid's diary, that you shouldn't, as you said, eavesdrop on every conversation. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't exactly know what the strategy should be. 
I often hear from parents or teachers where you it's the overheard conversation and like mm. something gets activated and I'm like, oh my God, that sounds dangerous. But again, it's like, slow down. Like, don't run up the ladder yet, but just ask like, huh, I think I heard you talking about this. Like, could you tell me more? You know, because if, if, if you hear children isolating and going after a child, right, that mm-hmm. that's a place where we need to intervene. And if you hear like they're doing that self-regulation, they're doing the self-monitoring, because that, again, that's an important skill for them to learn. Like mm-hmm. they're going to do their own self-adjustment. So if you hear that, even if it's really hard and they didn't get to the place that you ideally wanted them to get, but they got right. they got better. Like, hey, please stop using the you know F word to refer to gay people, right? Maybe you wanted them to say 10 other things, but they said that like, like, okay. Right. No, you have to take like, shut up, dude, as a win. Exactly. And I think that that can be hard for adults sometimes that we realize like we need to trust that that was a that's in the win column and we'll just keep listening. I think all of this, one of the sort of surprising things for me that you're saying and and is, I, I think, helpful is that we are talking about. Um, this idea of kids being able to regulate themselves, you know, and I, you know, I was not allowed to have TV as a kid. And as soon as I got to college, I binged it in a way that was definitely not healthy. But I can tell you anything about Beverly Hills 90210. Um, in any case, you know, I'm, I'll just use the example of, of like, say, let's say Nerf guns, which I know some parents are comfortable with and some parents are not. You know, if a parent comes to me and says, I really would prefer that my kids don't do that, then I hear you are making a terrible decision about your young men. Why are you letting them play with Nerf guns? Can you help me with a script that like, or a template for what, what net, what gets me in between there? Like that, that feels hard. Yes, it is hard. And I do believe that asking questions first to understand why a parent allows their child to play with Nerf Nerf guns. Just be curious. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that decision for you. Why was that important? What is that like? What does that mean for you and your relationship with your child? What does it mean for you? Like, what memories do you have? And if I just mm-hmm. jump to offering, well, well, this is what I believe about my family. Yeah. Then I'm I'm kind of setting it up as an either or, and I might come to understand some things. I'm like, okay, because then it might even actually help me explain to my own young person. Yeah. No. So for them, this is like part of what is important about that. And for us, like, this is what's important. Right. And those are two different things. And we can live in that, you know, melting pot, right? Yeah, exactly. We can we can hold the complexity of two things that seem opposite. But yet, like, I want to have relationship with this family. Like, my child is really good friends with this other person's child. (laughs) And so even though I may not agree, I don't have to be right. I can be curious and believe that what they believe is true for them and their family. And I can I can also believe that what's true for me and true for my family is true. And that sounds like it's important with kids and with adults, the whole thing. I can hear that the values of curiosity and sort of steadfastness are really... Is there anything else parents should keep in the back of their mind when this anxiety comes up, when there's an event in the news? Are there any words of encouragement um, that you can offer just from also your experience dealing with young people? Um, wh- what gives you hope? I think one of the saddest things I always hear from young people is nobody talked to us about it. You know, Uvalde happens, no one talked to us about it. Buffalo happens, no one talked to us about it. And I mean no one, meaning from family to school to other places. That's when I talk about what I hope 
is if we can normalize, like, we're going to talk about it. And we're going to co-create together. I don't have the answers. I have some beliefs. And I'm going to co-create with you. That's what gives me hope. I'm really hopeful about young people. I feel the ways in which they have weathered COVID. They have weathered all of this. They do self-monitor. They monitor each other. I believe in them. And so I want to create a container to continue to support that. And that's what I want to ask from other adults. That's really important. I can't. Th- thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. This has been such a great conversation. Okay, so like I said earlier, I found that really empowering because, because there's so much you can do. Learn the signs of radicalization when your kid might be falling down that rabbit hole. What are the kinds of jokes, comments? What are the things you should be aware of? Here's a really important one. Don't overreact. You need to keep the relationship open. Help them to have agency. They need to learn to ask the right questions, not just of the content they see, but also of their friends. Communicate frequently with other parents. What are their kids doing? Does it differ from your rules? It's hard to talk about it with other parents, but you have to be aware of it so that you know how to be curious with your kid about what they may be exposed to. Be curious most of all. Hey kids, what are you doing on TikTok? What's good? What's funny? Who's your favorite YouTuber? What kind of stuff do you see? Normalize your interest in their online life. For more Life Kit, check out our other episodes. There's a few on how to manage your kids' scream time. You can find those at npr.org slash lifekit. And if you love Life Kit and want more, subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash lifekit newsletter. And now, a random tip from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Ali Zanzonico, and my life hack is that at the end of every job interview, you should ask the interviewer, do you have any concerns about me as a candidate? It gives you the opportunity to address any concerns that they have head on, and then you get to walk away from the interview feeling like you know what's going on in their head. Uh, It always leaves a really positive impression. If you've got a good tip, leave us a voicemail at 202-216-9823 or email us a voice memo at lifekit at npr.org. This episode of Life Kit was produced by Michelle Aslam. Megan Kane is the managing producer. Beth Donovan is the senior editor. Our visuals editor is Beck Harlan. Our editor is Dahlia Mortada. Our production team also includes Audrey Wynn, Andy Tegel, Mansi Karana, and Sylvie Douglas. Our intern is Vanessa Handy. Special thanks to Andrew Sussman and Odette Youssef. I'm Barry Hardiman. Thanks for listening.